Vicki Durian and Nancy Santamero were shot to death on June 25, 1980 in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. They had been hitchhiking their way to the Rainbow Gathering, which was kind of a temporary community in the woods that aimed to bring together everyone from hipsters to hippies to show that we can all live in peace if we reform our society. That the women would meet such a violent end on their way to such a hopeful spot makes their story all the more tragic. And they weren't the only victims in this story. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Join me for another captivating true crime story where physical, emotional, and spiritual safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening, I believe you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is season four, episode 31. The book I chose this week is The Third Rainbow Girl by Emma Copley Eisenberg. And our guest is therapist, author, and speaker, Donna Scott. This story is really different in what I thought was a very interesting way. Rather than being just a classic true crime tale where the bulk of the story is a search for the person responsible for the murders, it also spends a great deal of time investigating the trauma that these crimes caused the community where they happened. With the festival being held at the Monongahela National Forest, the influx of visitors equaled or even topped the population of the entire county. But somehow, when a young man discovered Vicki and Nancy's bodies, suspicion quickly centered on local suspects. The third rainbow girl of the title was Liz Jondro, who had been traveling with Vicki and Nancy. She started having kind of an uneasy feeling about going to this gathering. She called home and found out that her father was actually getting remarried soon. So a day before the murders, she followed her gut and went her own way at a Virginia truck stop rather than traveling on to the gathering. That call home and her decision to go to the wedding and listen to her gut saved her life. The festival leader put pictures of the dead women in the daily newsletter that he passed around, asking if anyone recognized them. Eventually, a copy of that newsletter made its way to Nancy's sister, Kathy. She thought the braids on one of the dead women looked like Nancy's, but the face was too damaged for her to recognize her sister. After Nancy didn't turn up and didn't call, she became worried. She and a friend went to Charleston, West Virginia, where the bodies of the two murdered women had been sent. Identification was not going to be easy, given what the two women had endured. Then Kathy spotted a familiar handmade bracelet, and she knew it was Nancy. Police began to look into the recent whereabouts of the locals who always got looked at when any sort of crime happened in the area. None of those early leads went anywhere, and the case quickly went cold. Months later, hunters found the women's backpacks hidden in some brush. Two more years passed, and then Vicki's parents got a phone call from a man who said he was from Pocahontas County, and he just wanted to tell her parents how sorry he was for their loss. He wouldn't give his name when Vicki's father asked, and he quickly hung up. Mr. Durian immediately called police. They put a tap on the phone on the off chance that this man would call back, and he actually did. Authorities traced that call to a 36-year-old farmer, a man by the name of Jacob Beard. He had a checkered background, but there was no real evidence that could tie him to these killings. Not until 1992, when he and six other men were charged with the murders. When one of the men claimed that a police officer had threatened him, all of the charges against all of the men were dropped. Less than a year later, all but one were indicted again. Then charges were dropped once again. 
but not against Jacob Beard. Hang on tight, because we're going to run through his legal journey pretty quickly. There was an unexpected twist when a serial killer confessed to Nancy and Vicky's murders. Authorities didn't think that what he was telling them matched the evidence, and so they discounted the possibility that he could have been the perpetrator. Beard was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Then that conviction was overturned. Beard was acquitted in a new trial and actually got a $2 million settlement when he sued for wrongful imprisonment. When asked, residents of the county would say they remembered the murders the way people remembered where they were the day President Kennedy was shot. Locals were quoted in news articles saying that the case hadn't been out of anyone's mind in the 12 years since the slayings occurred. The culture of Appalachia itself was widely discussed as playing into creating the type of person who could do what was done to Vicki and Nancy. That, of course, annoyed all of the people who called that area home. Many people blamed the women for hitchhiking rather than blame the killer or killers for killing. Others hinted darkly that the police weren't interested in solving the murders since the women weren't local. At this point, it really seems like the case is so muddled that it may never be solved unless someone comes forward. And that's an ongoing trauma, not only for Nancy and Vicki's family, but the community as well, because there are parts of it that are still divided over who they believed the killer or killers are. Our guest today, author, speaker, and therapist Donna Scott is going to help us understand the effects of trauma on victims, secondary victims, and communities. So you won't want to miss that. Donna, I want to welcome you to the podcast and say thank you for joining us. I am so thrilled to be here and I'm so grateful for the invitation and opportunity to serve your listeners. You have a great background, which I've already told everybody about. So we're just going to dive right in. This case really, really hit a nerve with me because I've learned a lot in my job about the effects of trauma. And I think that a lot of times we underestimate how deeply it can affect people. And it can even leave a mark on people that wouldn't consider themselves primary victims of that traumatic incident. Correct. So help us understand what trauma does to victims, what it does to those secondary people, and what it can even do to our communities. I like this quote from Dr. Gabor Mate, and he says, trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is what happens inside you as a result of what happened to you. And I like that because trauma is such a buzzword now that sometimes the impact of what trauma really is kind of gets diminished. When I share the correct or the real definition Trauma actually has three points to it, the event, the experience, and the effect. Mm. Because trauma is defined as an event that was potentially physically or emotionally harmful to you. The experience is your perception of the event, the threat to it. And I'm gonna give you an example in a minute. And the final piece is the effect. What is the impact on you? How does that change how you are able to cope or function physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or even psychologically? And that's a lot, right? It is. That's a lot. Uh, A really good example of trauma is a car accident. And I've never liked driving, ever. 
It just feels like there's no control. Not of mine, because I'm a great driver. Of course. It's the other people who don't know how to drive. I was actually in two car accidents, three months apart. Praise God, I survived. Neither one was my fault. I was rear-ended in the first accident. In the second accident, the person lost control of their steering and they came right toward my side of the car. That fits the definition of a traumatic event, right? My life was threatened Mm -hmm. physically. What did I tell myself? What was my experience about that? The first piece in the first accident was, I was always afraid that this would happen. I knew this would happen. It's not safe. My experience is I'm not safe when I get in a car. Other people can get into a car accident. Okay, accidents happen. We can keep going. They don't tell themselves anything that makes their experience feel even more unsafe, right? Mm -hmm. By the time the second accident happened, every time I tried to get into the car, and this goes into effects. It, I could feel the anxiety rising in me. When someone else is driving, I cannot look up. I have to read. I have to do something else because otherwise I can't manage the anxiety. I have to pray when I drive because I live in San Diego. And my dream is to be able to make enough money to get a driver so that I never have to drive. <laughs> but that's the effect of the trauma on me. Now, that's me who the trauma happened to. Is that making sense, Lori? It is. And I love the way that you have just laid that out step by step. And for me, it helps explain how very similar incidents Mm -hmm. can affect people so very differently. Exactly. And I think it underscores, too, why we need to process these things. Yes. So that if we're telling ourselves things about that event... Mm-hmm. that maybe aren't true. Th- they might have been true for us, but our perception, maybe they're not objectively true. Right. Someone can work through that with us. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's so important to honor that person's perception oh, because yeah. their experience is, I tell my clients, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. And I say, no, should and feelings do not belong in the same sentence. Your feelings are already there. They're real. Now it's our job to help you know what to do with those feelings. But to punish yourself, belittle yourself, or as others will do, you shouldn't feel that way. That's not how God made us. He made us in his image and he gave us feelings. So we need to pay attention and honor those too. I think that's wonderful because I'm a huge fan of counseling when you need it. But I I know that there's a lot of people that will resist it. Mm -hmm. Feeling like maybe, you know, we're such a pull ourselves up by the bootstraps kind of society. And and in our Mm -hmm. faith communities, sometimes we feel like, well, people will see that I'm not showing enough faith. And so that's bad. Yeah. So what would you tell someone who is struggling with a traumatic event? They feel like maybe they shouldn't go to counseling. There's that word again. I did, didn't I? Oh, I should have avoided that. No, but that's what our brothers and sisters in Christ experience. What I call the tyranny of the shoulds. It's that there ought to be these rules that we follow. And if we don't, as Christians, we're in trouble. 
Because how can a Christian be depressed or anxious? Doesn't the scripture say be anxious for nothing? Doesn't the word say the joy of the Lord is your strength so you can handle anything? Again, like I said before, God gave us feelings. And when I look at scriptures about fear, depending on what version of the Bible, there's over 365 verses about fear, anxiety, Mm -hmm. or worry. It's like God blessed us with a verse a day. (laughs) And when you read it in context, it says, do not worry or do not fear because God is with you or do this instead. I love that you use that word context. Yes. yes. The Bible is all about context. What is surrounding that verse? Why was that verse written? You have to look at all those things. I'm guessing that you would argue that God very much supports us getting help when we feel like we need help. Well, besides being a Christian therapist, yeah, yeah, I would absolutely argue that. But I would also argue it for this way. God even says, come, let us reason together. If there's a problem, let's talk about it. And then I like to say, God gave us people with skin on. You see many people in the Bible seeking help, getting wisdom. People tracked Jesus down because there was a need and they were hurting and help was available. If you had diabetes or a heart condition, you'd be at that cardiologist. You would be at that general practice doctor. When you're hurting emotionally, you have a disease of the heart. There's something that's not functioning the way God intended. Do you sit on that or do you seek wisdom? Do you seek therapy? And I tell people, I give people three signs that it's time to look for a therapist. When everything you've tried to feel better is not working, number one. Number two, your ability to function has been impacted for two weeks. Let's say you've been depressed for over two weeks and there's been no shift in that sadness or that lack of energy to get out of bed or your appetite has changed or your sleep pattern has changed. And that's going on for two weeks. You've tried. Get the help. And the other reason, the last reason I recommend it's time to get help is when your friends and your family tell you, you know, I think it's time for you to get some help. Because at that point, they realize they can't be your therapist because you have that need to make sense of the event that happened to you. When I talk about trauma, I want you to think about a file cabinet. You open the file cabinet, you put the file folder in, and you can close the drawer. Well, with trauma, the file gets stuck. And when you try to close the drawer, it doesn't work. And that's where therapy can come in to help you take out that file, help make sense of the event, help make sense of the experience, help you understand the impact of that event on you and then what to do about it and help you be able to put the file in and finally be able to close the door. What I also love about being a Christian therapist is the Holy Spirit is the real counselor. The Holy Spirit is the real therapist. I get to talk to him and he gets to pour into me as I get to pour into these hurting hearts. And Laura, I wanted to go back to another question you asked that I didn't completely answer because you asked, how do we help others who weren't the actual drivers of trauma, 
but you kind of come alongside. You can be a relative. You can be a witness. I think in your case, how the community was impacted by the trauma of the murder. And what we call that is secondary trauma. And it's something that first responders, therapists like myself, we have to be aware of because even though the traumatic event did not happen to us, we hear the story. So we relive the trauma with them. Your community relive that trauma as the story was put in the news and the investigations. They had to relive that over and over and over again. I work with adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. I wrote a book about that. And in the chapter on working with couples, I say that that spouse is a secondary victim to the perpetrator that hurt Mm -hmm. their wife or husband. Yes. So I'm working with two survivors in that moment. So when you have that, you have to be aware that as the secondary person or as the person in community witnessing the impact of the survivor that recognize you can feel overwhelmed, your sleep can be disturbed, your appetite can be disturbed, you can have sadness and depression and, hey, irritability. Mm. There are times when I'm working with, when I come home from work and I just have this heavy weight And I'm snapping at my family and I'm like, where is this coming from? And I'll talk to a colleague and she's like, that's secondary trauma. Oh, oh yeah. I had some really tough cases today. You mentioned the Bible giving us Mm -hmm. so many verses about not being afraid. Yes. And that was something that fear factor, if you will, fascinated me about this case because as it went unsolved, you know, that makes communities very nervous. Mm-hmm. It makes them afraid. Yeah. And even though there were tens of thousands of people gathered for this event, very quickly, the community started picking out others in the community mm-hmm. to, to focus on, oh, we need to look into this person, that person. And I think that that is something that we do a lot. We other people. I'm the good person. You're the bad person who would do something like this. So how can we keep ourselves from falling into that trap of using fear, our own fears, to other people and push them away instead of loving them the way Jesus would? Part of that is it almost, there's almost a sense of a fear of contagious, right? What if they see me that way? And unless you can own what you're feeling and make sense of what you're feeling, because sometimes they get all tangled in a knot and it's uncomfortable yes. to feel certain emotions. And what do we want to do? We want to push them down or push them away. One, a great tool is to deflect. And when we deflect and look away from ourselves, we look at other. We focus on other. We think about other. And we externalize what we may even be feeling about ourselves and get wrapped up in stereotypes or hide behind the cloak of Christianity, of finger pointing. Yes, this is something we all need to be so very aware of because you can fall into that without even realizing it happened. 
I'm so glad you said we all, because I'm in that number. Me too. I'm absolutely in that number. Like I said, you have to know you and understand what's happening with you. What is fearful about this? And why am I trying to find an answer? Because that's the other thing that is uncomfortable, not having an answer. And like you said, in this case, there were no answers. I think you mentioned it was unsolved for so long. Yes. Humans, we need proof, answers, resolution. I like how my pastor says to live in the land of I don't know. Yeah, we don't want to be in that land, do we? No, not at all. Like you said, it's uncomfortable. Yes. But I think discomfort is typically where we grow the most. And you would be right. So for any of you who are feeling the same as we are, mm-hmm. we've got some uncomfortable spots in our lives. Yeah. How how do we take that discomfort and then become someone, you know, we're not trauma therapists, the rest of us. <laughs> so we, we don't want to be out there doing any damage. But how do we support someone who has been through either a trauma themselves Mm -hmm. or they're a secondary victim or they're just struggling because of something that their community has experienced? Mm -hmm. The number one tool I offer you is learn how to listen. And when I say learn how to listen, I don't mean listen so you can give all your wisdom. I like this quote that says, we need to learn how to listen to understand, not listen to respond. I love that. Right? Because as the person is speaking and we hear one or two words or a phrase, we start formulating a rebuttal or a response and miss more than half of what the person is trying to say. And then when you share your response that doesn't match what that person was saying, they'd feel unheard. They feel invalidated, like their feelings or thoughts don't matter, and they won't want to keep talking. So the best support we can do is learn how to listen. And and listen this way. I tell people I would be out of a job. If others knew how to listen to it. <laughs> Seriously, it's there's such an intentionality to it because you listen again to understand. And when you listen to understand, guess what? You don't judge. You don't offer advice. You don't start talking about you like, oh, yeah, I remember when that happened to me. And then it's all about you. So you don't take over. Create a sense of safety for that person by respecting their privacy, that what they share with you is not going to be all over the church. It's not going to be all over the community. You're not going to read about it in the, I don't even know if the Inquirer's still out, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Respect that privacy. And then if they're willing, because you're listening to what they're asking for, you're listening to what they need, see if you can help find support for them. Because like you said, you're not a therapist. Even when I'm not in my therapeutic role and like in church, I'm like, I'm Donna there. Even though I feel like I walk around with this big magnet on my forehead, tell me all your problems. Uh, I was in my doctor's office and she was telling me all this stuff. So even in that, I'm, I'm like, okay, who can I send you to? Can I send you to the pastor? I think I shared before I had a lady in the church who shared with me how she was being beaten by her husband. 
Mm-hmm. And as a therapist, yes, I have an idea what to do. But I wasn't there as a therapist. I was there as a sister in Christ. So I listened and I understood. And as she finished sharing and with so much pain and I checked in, would you like some help? Yes. Okay. Are you okay with me talking to the pastor? No, no, because the pastor did a sermon on marriage and I'm supposed to submit. And I had to listen to her fear because my first thought was, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. Her fear is valid. Yes. Because I reflected on the sermon. I'm like, yeah, he sure did. I know that's not what he meant. So after I I, um, supported and validated her fear, I said, "I, I get why you believe that. That makes sense to me. I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yes. We can traumatize people ourselves. Oh my gosh. Yes. Unintentionally. So be very intentional about the words that you use. I had shared with you before, Mm -hmm. my family left a church over some words Pastor used that I doubt that he meant it this way, but they were so condemning, so judgmental and so many unintended consequences can happen yeah. when we're not careful with our words. Yeah. And I think I'm so glad you brought that up because in our desire to help, we do more harm. And I remember my first job at a fast food restaurant and a customer walked. I was working the front register and I'm really dating myself because there was nothing electronic. You had to write it. <laughs> white wax crayon on the orders. And I went to take his order and he said, you can't help me. I want her to help me pointing to another cashier. I'm like, fine. I don't blame you. Everybody likes her. So I go to clean up something else. And my manager walks up to the front window and says, may I help you? And the guy starts giving him his order. And uh, my manager's looking at me like, why am I doing your job? And so he says, oh, Donna will help you. So I went to take his order. He said, no, she cannot help me. And he pointed to everybody in the store. I was the only black person in the store. And so the manager turned beet red, erased the order and said, you are not welcome in my store. Get out. Oh, good for him. Exactly. I felt protected, but I was in shock because that was my first incident with overt racism. So my manager sends me in the back to take a break and he comes to check on me. And then he says, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but you should be used to it. Okay, not helpful. (laughs) Started out helpful, took an off ramp. Took an off ramp. But I know his heart because he's a Christian. He and I were like the main Christians in the store. So I know his heart was not to harm, but in his effort to help me, he caused more hurt than the the actual guy who rebuffed me. Mm. Oh, well, my heart hurts for you. Well, thank you. But that's what I'm saying. And and that's what I'm co-signing on what you're saying is, hey, we really do want to help, but we have to be careful that we don't do more harm in our desire to help. And that means, again, listening, paying attention, staying tuned, not offering your opinion before you understand anything. If he had said instead, I don't know how, I can't imagine what you're going through. That just hurts me to watch that happen to you. Have you experienced that before? Then I could have said, no, I've never experienced that. But perception that I already had 
So that's why we have to put our preconceived notions to the back and stay present with that hurting individual. And in the true crime world, we say it this way, no victim blaming. Ah. So, you know, yeah. the, uh, yes. the, uh, the leader of the deacon board makes sexually inappropriate comments to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody should be asking you, well, what were you wearing? Right. Right. Let's call out the people who are causing the trauma, not the people who are experiencing it. Exactly. Exactly. Well said, Laurie. Well said. Oh, thank you. Well, you have got so much tremendous information. You know, you alluded to a book that you've written. I know that you speak as well. So if Mm -hmm. people want to get connected with you to get more of the wonderful content that you have, what is the best way to do that? The best way to reach me is on my website. And if you want to sign up for monthly tips of encouragement, I will send you a freebie, a tip sheet that I call Untangled. Because when you've been traumatized, it gets a grip on you that you sometimes feel like you will never get over the impact of your trauma. So I want to help you untangle so you can find the peace that God really wants you to have. That is awesome. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. So I want everybody to go grab that because even if you're feeling like, oh, I don't need that myself, right? you might need it in the future. And if you're equipped and ready, God might just bring someone across your path who needs that. Amen. Well said. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you again for joining us and giving us such practical, and scriptural advice. I love it. Thank you for having me. And I'm just grateful that you're out here sharing an unlovely truth to hurting people so that they know they're not alone and that God cares. Thank you, Lori. Oh, wonderful way to wrap things up. Thank you. The Bible passage I want to dive into this week is a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When we look around in society today, who do we see doing what Jesus was doing? Do we see politicians doing that? Do we see social media influencers? And if we're really honest, Do we see our churches stepping up, leaving the building to find those who need us? If your church does, that is awesome. Keep it up. But if not, ask your leadership, why not? And then ask if you can help start an outreach ministry to serve people who might not feel like they fit in or would be welcomed in a church. Maybe that's a Bible study in your local jail, taking bottled water and food to a homeless encampment, or helping out foster kids in your community. If we have compassion like Jesus did, we're going to help shepherd his sheep. Let me know what you think about today's episode. Send me an email to Lori, that's L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com, or you can message me on social media. I love it when people are willing to have these hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.